Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. You're listening to the Music Is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound Review Network. The legend loomed so large. People heard the story about once upon a time, there was a band that went up on stage and destroyed the arena. I've talked to a number of fans who are like, oh, if I could go back in time, I'd love to go back to 1976 so I could see Kiss in concert. 1996 comes around and guess what? It's brought to your doorstep. We went in there and did everything we were supposed to do and left everybody sweaty, exhausted, and jubilant. They went further than anybody else would ever dare go. KISS isn't just music. KISS isn't just a stage show. It isn't just makeup. It isn't just merchandise. It just reminds generation after generation, this is an act that's fun and the music is great. History is oddly repeating itself. And if that's the case, KISS continues, you know. Even when KISS steps off the stage from their very last show, KISS is going to continue. Music is Live Podcast. This is your host, Lou Maps. Check out everything you need to know about the show over at musiciesivepodcast.com. My guest today is one of the first, if not the first, to launch online marketing campaigns for bands in the music industry. Some of these strategies include what's normally used today, including search engine optimization except we're talking back in the mid to late 1990s when it was brand new. It's the primary reason you may recognize him because his methodical approach to using a fresh tool called the internet was so innovative that Mr. Gene Simmons of KISS hired him to run KISS's website, KISS Online. As a freelance consultant, he has also worked for many other significant artists in the world of music, such as Accept, Ozzy Osbourne, Madonna, Britney Spears, Rod Stewart, and Dream Theater. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Lacuna Coil is also one of your more recent clients, correct? Uh, no. Blackie Lawless of Wasp. Oh, okay. I don't know why I felt Lacuna Coil. I apologize. Nope. Nope. Okay. No, not at all. All right. Moving right along. Womp womp. <laughs> <He's>... <laughs> He is the host of two great podcasts, one that discusses current ongoings in the music industry called the Music Biz Weekly Podcast with Mr. Jay Gilbert, and quite possibly the most popular podcast dedicated to the history and present state of the band Kiss that doesn't involve our mutual friend, Ralph Vieira. Schmack him a gob! <laughs> with his co-hosts, Mr. Tommy Summers, Mr. Mark Ciccini, and Mrs. Lisa Martini called Three Sides of the Coin since 2012. And I will not lie, I was incredibly influenced by his talents and honesty as a host to start this podcast. He's the head of Michael Brandvold Marketing, and I'm happy to discuss his history in the business, his time with KISS, and his opinions on the current state of the business. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to present to you my guest tonight, Mr. Michael Brandvold. Wow, thank you. I don't know if I've ever had an introduction like that. I'm a cunning linguist. What can I say? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> oh, it's fucking brilliant. 
I've always wanted to say that. And I finally got the chance to. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Mike, it is a pleasure to officially meet you. I've been listening to you and watching you for many years right now, almost 10. So having this one on one with you is a real treat for me. Thank you so much. You bet. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. How's everything in California right now? Mm, really nice. It's uh first week of summer vacation for my daughter. So we're all, you know, finding, getting her into camps and getting home from camps and how to work from home when she's around. So yeah, that's, it's, that's awesome. it's the fun, the fun, the fun challenges. I can relate. My daughter's turning four. We've already booked our vacation for uh, Dutch Wonderland in Pennsylvania next uh, for the yep, month of August. You so, you know, she's doing the dance thing. She's doing the daycare thing. She's starting. Uh, don't laugh. Bible camp next week. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, we're, we're trying to raise a good moral upstanding yep. child, which means she'll be a great disappointment to me as she gets older. But I digress. But anyways, <laughs> moving right along. What was it in your life experience that made you fall in love with music and influence your career as a marketing consultant and as a podcast host? I guess if there was one moment where I got hooked on music, it was probably watching Kiss on the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Halloween 1976 with uh, yep yeah that the, with the Wicked Witch. <laughs> that Margaret was Hamilton. a moment where I was 12 at the time. I think I just remember like my jaw dropping, going, well, "My God, what am I watching? What am I hearing?" Every sense in your body was like overwhelmed with what was being broadcast to you. You know the music. The visuals, the makeup, the, you know, are these guys real? Are they fake? I, you know, as a kid, it was just overwhelming. And I think that just kind of set me on my path as a Kiss fan and as a music fan. Well, that's what I've always wanted. Four kisses on the first date. <laughs> <laughs> well, your good friend sure has a weird sense of humor. Mark, did you have introduced me to your friends? Oh, forgive me. This is Ace, this is Jean, this is Peter, and this is Paul. Oh, I love a good religious group. <laughs> and your makeup is something else. How long does it take you to put it on? We don't wear makeup. That's something I can relate to because my history with the band Kiss, I remember seeing them without the makeup. We had a channel out here called U68, which was a UHF equivalent to MTV. And they had Lick It Up in heavy rotation. Lick It Up, Heaven's on Fire. I didn't realize they were the band that wore makeup until many years later. Kind of out of sight, out of mind. But growing up, my favorite band was always Black Sabbath. I loved Tony Iommi. I loved Randy Rose. And I especially loved Eddie Van Halen. That made me want to be a guitar player. 1993, I turned 13 years old and my eldest brother said, you know, you turned me on to a lot of music that you like. I want to turn you on to something that I loved when I was your age. So we went to Nobody Beats the Wiz, our nearest music store, and he picked out destroyer for me. It wasn't just then that I had the realization that I wanted to be a guitar player, but hearing Detroit Rock City, I think I had that on repeat for about two weeks before I moved on to the rest of the album. And that made me want to go on stage. Mm -hmm. So I'm proud to say that thanks to a band like Kiss, I had the guts to say, all right, I'm going to get on stage and do it. I'm not a professional musician by any means whatsoever, but you know, I'm a hobbyist and Part of why I love being on stage is because that gave me the drive to do it. And right. If I haven't said it before, thank you, Kiss, for influencing a generation of knuckleheads <laughs> like me to like, you know, <laughs> um, they, they've, they've influenced so many people. It's, they really it's crazy have. when you really when, when you start talking to a lot of people, especially in in and around the music business, somehow they they are there for so many of them. Definitely. When you first started in marketing, what would you have considered paying dues back then because now it's a lot different in terms of some people just they're either naturally gifted at it or they're either in the business and they're they build their way up or like you i see by the amount of gold records behind you there's definitely a level of success that you've attained but when you started in marketing what would be considered paying your dues then that many people may not know now well you know, back when I got started, I shouldn't say this with full facts, but there really weren't schools to go to for the music business. There were schools to learn instruments, 
you know, guitars, drums, stuff like that. But there really wasn't a lot of colleges, universities with music business programs. You know, they're much more common now. But back when I was in college, you know, the the mid to late 80s, no, nothing. So paying your dues kind of meant learning it from the street. Meaning in my case, it was getting a job at the college radio station. Never been on radio before, had no training, no experience, went in, said, I want to do this. I want to do a heavy metal radio show. Boom. You know, and all of a sudden I'm talking to record labels and radio reps and, you know, everything that's going along in the business for there. So it was, you know, literally learning and paying your dues on the ground doing it. I then interned at a local radio station, a commercial radio station. You know, I did surveys and call outs and even had to wear their mascot costume at parades and, you know, mall events. And that was paying your dues back then, whether it was finding a local band and helping them getting a job at a venue. That's how you paid your dues and you learned the trade and what was going on was just getting in there and starting to do it on your own, learning from people who were already there to tell you what to do and what not to do. No music business programs were out there that you could go join and you could sit in a class and learn about marketing and learn about promotion. I studied marketing in college. I was a marketing major. So in general, I just studied marketing, but there was no industry focus. So paying the dues back then was jumping in with both feet and just doing it on your own sometimes. And to some extent, that's I still think that's one of the best ways to get into the music business. I mean, yeah, you can definitely go to a music business program and study and get all the book smarts. But let me tell you, once you're on on the ground and you've got to book a show or promote an album or sell t-shirts at a merch stand, it's all different than what they teach you. It's almost like every industry. There's book smarts and there's street smarts. And there's nothing wrong with book smarts. But I think if you've been in any industry long enough, you realize it's street smarts, which gets you further. Book smarts might get you into the business. Street smarts are what's going to keep you in the industry. I mean, you'll you'll just learn stuff that nobody can teach you in a book. I think that's a very vital point. I'm glad that when I was starting, when I was younger, fresh faced out of high school, I took the same approach. My first internship was right before I started St. John's University. I was an intern for Troma, the movie company that made Toxic Avenger. And I learned about making press kits for the movie industry. I learned about promoting events coming up. I learned about making phone calls and you know getting products for product placement within the film. I learned in college radio. I'm proud to say that some of the artists that I had the chance to interview because I was making connections with the record labels included Guar. I got to interview the late Dave Rocky. I got to interview Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. And I'm proud to say I even got to interview Bruce Kulick when Union was promoting their second album. I also interned at a record label, NG Artemis Records. This was right around the time they signed the band Kitty. This is way before they signed Black Label Society. I remember being 19 and still living at home. They asked us, well, how much do you want for your stipend? I said, nothing. I just want experience. Everything that I've learned not only got me my full-time job because they saw that I could hustle, but it's part of the reason why I do my podcast on my own and try to handle it as professionally as I can. You know, it's just, I realize presentation is everything. Having that street smarts and having that experience in it definitely helped me. So I completely agree with you 100% and thank you for making that point. I think it's something that most people out there need to know is that yes, book smarts do get you far, but getting your elbows dirty and being in it takes you farther. That's yeah, an awesome you know, point. Book, book, book smarts, I tend to think a lot of people, and again, it's not just music industry, but, you know, there's more and more people that come out of, you know, business programs that are like, okay, I graduated the business program. I wanted my first job to be the vice president and I want to be making, you know, $150,000 a year right away. And it's like, you haven't nope. proven yourself. <laughs> You, you haven't, you know, to your point, I didn't intern with a record label, but you know, I was in Minnesota, so there weren't record labels, but I would have killed to get an internship with a label out in California 
and for free. It wasn't about making money. It was like, okay, that's what gets your foot in the door. And if you prove yourself and you kick ass and do a great job, you will get a job. You'll get paid. You'll get hired by somebody. You know, you work your way up the ladder. There's countless stories of, you know, David Geffen. He didn't start as president of Geffen Records. No. He didn't start out of the gate managing artists. Started in the mailroom and worked his way up. And I think to some extent, you still have to do that. If you really want to understand the business, you take any job they give you. Meaning, you know, maybe you want to become a publicist. Well, okay, that's great. But maybe you also need to learn about booking venues and radio promotion, selling t-shirts, building websites, because all of that makes you a more well-rounded person in the industry, not just very narrow in your skill set. The labels were primarily on the coast. And well, you know, they, they, they had label offices in most major cities, but those offices were basically promotion offices. You know, that's where the retail and radio promoters worked out of for their region. The label headquarters were basically New York and LA. And like everything, job markets get oversaturated with people who pursue career paths in college as opposed to being in the industry in the moment and working their way to where they end up going. For example, when I was growing up, every parent wanted their kid to be one of five things, lawyer, teacher, doctor, dentist, or accountant. You told your parents, I want to work in the music industry. You were kicked out at five years old. They wouldn't want to hear it. But now we're living in a day where it's like those markets that I just mentioned, they're oversaturated. It seems like that's the case with marketing today. It seems like anyone could say that they're a marketing specialist, but they don't either have the clientele or the experience to back it up. They just have the college degree that says marketing. Oh, woe to me. Business is bad. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about either the music industry or marketing? And what do you think may be the points that they could be misinformed about? When I went to college, I studied marketing in general. Just marketing, marketing concepts. It wasn't related to any business, any industry. And I think that's important because if you have the concepts, you can take those to any industry out there. Marketing is marketing at its core, at its root. It's the same. The problem is a lot of people get such specialized focus training that they only understand marketing for this industry. They can't go to another industry and do marketing or whatever they were trained in. So, you know, it's, it's sort of the concept of you could be trained to specifically sell widget A, or you could be trained to just be a salesperson who could sell anything. In general, companies want somebody who's got that broad talent because as we know, especially because of the internet now, the business world is changing so fast. I mean, look, just look at what COVID did in two years. It basically pushed every offline business. You either make yourself available to sell online or you're out of business. We knew pre-COVID that that's where it was going. Hello, Amazon, you're killing all of the mom and pops. But COVID pretty much was like, okay, if you don't have the ability to take orders online and deliver, doesn't matter. It's done. It's over. You got to have kind of a broad base in your area of study so that when new technology comes along and things change, you're not kicked to the curb because you only understood one thing. You know, when I started in the music business, streaming didn't exist. Even downloads didn't exist. MP3s were just starting out, but it was all Napster. It was it was ripping and and trading MP3s. There was no business built around that. Nobody understood what that meant. And you know, look how that changed the entire industry. And then streaming changed online downloads. We're to the point now where, you know, I just talked to a potential client earlier today and we were like, I, I don't know if there's any value for you to produce CDs and vinyl. 30 years ago, that would have been it. You got to do CDs. You got to do vinyl. Maybe a little download. Now it's like, 
don't worry about CDs. Don't worry about vinyl. If you aren't going to be touring, who are you going to sell them to? You know, the whole business has changed. And again, if you were so specifically focused in your skill set that that change might make you obsolete. Not to toot your horn, but yeah, no true words have been spoken. I'll even relate my story to you as a professional. My degree from St. John's University was in communications. Originally, I wanted to pursue journalism. I remember telling my uh, my parents that. And I remember at the time, 1998, things were kind of steering away from print journalism and going more towards online media where people were reading their news online or they were you know, looking at message boards for information, this and that. And I kind of saw to myself that print was dying if it wasn't dead yet, but it was it was it was getting to that point. So I decided to change my majors to communications, worked in the television industry for 15 years. While I was there, I was doing on-air broadcast operations, but I started getting involved more in the project management aspect of it to a point where eventually I transferred over into being a technical writer, instructional designer, training different departments. So I was able to transition what I left the TV industry doing into a completely different career path where it's where I'm happy to say I'm more successful in my professional life. And it allows me and enables me to do the podcast without having to worry about when's my next paycheck coming in. But I was able to transfer what I did because I realized that this can run the gamut of any industry that requires it to where I am now and what I'm doing. Yep. And yeah, that's important. You know, evolution is definitely vital for success in whatever industry that you're doing. As far as what you said about CDs, I'm one of those few that still appreciate physical media. For example, I'm a huge Frank Marino fan, Frank Marino and the Mahogany Rush. I can't tell you how much it kills me that I can't find their stuff on iTunes or Spotify. Am I willing to shell out 15 to $20 to buy one of their out of print CDs? Yes, absolutely. But I realize that for any artist who produces CDs, you're right. If they're not touring behind it, then there's no return of investment. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a matter of, listen, you guys want to go out and produce 500 CDs, but you're not going to tour? Whose garage is going to end up storing all those CDs? Because you're not going to sell them. You know, yep. and oh, great. You, your demographic is a CD buying demographic, but how are you going to get it out to them? They're not just seeking you out in this day and age. You really have got to think about producing product for the right reasons at the right time. Because again, the vast majority of bands are investing their own money into this. Yeah. It's, it's not a record label. It's not somebody else doing it. They're spending their own money. So do you want to dump a couple thousand dollars into a thousand CDs? If you know you're going to sell them, I'm all for that because you'll make a great margin off of that CD that costs you a buck, buck 50 to make, you know, you sell it for 10, 15 bucks. There you go. You're making a decent margin and profit off of that. But if you're not sure you're going to be able to sell them, you are basically just burning money and ending up with a garage stacked with boxes filled with CDs that five years from now have zero value. You're going to be wondering how you can sell them for a quarter apiece. <laughs> I hear that. What would you say was your true north moment where you saw the internet as a significant tool for marketing? You know, it was probably 98, 99 when I first started working with KISS, had built their website for them. And, you know, we started, we, I should say it was pretty much me, building an email list of kiss fans it's like uh you know i re i remember at one point i had i don't know sixty thousand kiss fans on an email list back then and i, I was one of them <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm assuming it's gotten much bigger since then but at that moment i realized it's like oh my god i can send an email out to sixty thousand kiss fans and tomorrow 10 percent of them are hitting the kiss online store and buying the tour t-shirts that we just advertised in the email blast that was something that could not be done 
before the internet. Sure, you could make a postcard, a flyer, and print it up, and then put postage on it, and put an address label on it, mail it out to somebody, and say, here, fill out this form, mail it back to us with your check or money order, and we'll send you the product you want. Well, that only works so far. That's a lot of steps for people to jump through. And every time you make another step for your consumer, you're going to lose people. So send an email, open an email, click a link, go right to the product, put your credit card in. Wow, that was just like, we were able to start selling so much KISS product back in the late 90s, just because of the ability to do internet marketing and directly reach the fans. And KISS's label at the time quickly was like, oh, we like that. We got a new album coming out. Can we do some email marketing to promote this? Yeah. What do you want us to do? Well, drive everybody to Amazon.com to pre-order. And again, this was pre-digital. So you were pre-ordering the CD release, pre-order the CD. Amazon's going crazy because they're getting thousands of pre-orders, which they hadn't seen before. How come? Because we were putting together an email marketing campaign to drive fans to pre-order, to pre-order, to pre-order. Don't miss the release. And that, in turn, excites Amazon to order more product because people are buying it. So we there must be demand. So we're going to get more. The label's happy because now more product is being ordered. Those were the moments where I was like, okay, this internet, website, email marketing really works. I can remember as though we're yesterday, the Kiss Online website and what a huge deal it was and how great it looked. Like I could visually remember it. I mean, it stuck out more than almost every other website in any field. I remember it was a big deal from 96 when the reunion happened to the farewell tour. That Psycho Circus era I don't think I recall any band that was as heavily marketed as Kiss was, where I remember Mad TV, the special live footage that was shown on Fox from Tiger Stadium, and their appearance on Millennium, the show on Fox with Lance Henriksen. Psycho Circus was everywhere. It was genius marketing. Commend everyone involved, especially you on that. And the fact that it still sticks in my head definitely shows that you made an impact. We were just one small part of that because a lot of that could have been driven by their merchandising company, their record label, other partners out there. But I kept fighting. It's like, okay, the website has to be central to all of what's going on here. It's common now, but you know, back in the late 90s, I'm like, we got to put the URL. We got to put kissonline.com on every product on every CD, on every poster. Why do we need that? Because that's where people are going to come back to. We want to get their email. We want them to come to the website so we can send them to the store to buy more product. It was a brand new concept back then. Had never done it. They didn't understand the value. I mean, again, you know, I was trying to convince people why you want to put your URL on everything. Today, you would look like a fool if you released a product and you didn't put your URL on it. Back then, people were like, what do we need a URL on there for? Oh, it's not that important. I'm like, yes, we've <laughs> got to do, we've like got to do not. this. And, and, you know, it was like, okay, what's the visual branding looking like on the t-shirts? Well, we're going to use the same branding on the website. And, you know, we're going to tie all of this stuff in together using the same logos, the same fonts, the same colors, the same messaging. So it looked like one big KISS world that was working together. And it was, it was, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was, it was a challenge because there were a lot of different companies with different moving parts, but kissonline.com had to be central to everything that was being done. Can we put the URL on concert tickets? Can we put the URL in, in concert ads? I mean, you probably remember, I mean, even the farewell tour, we wrapped one of the semi trucks with the Kiss Online logo. And that was actually the merchandise truck. That one semi was nothing but t-shirts. That's all was carried in that semi truck was merchandise to sell at the shows. And I'm like, can we wrap this with the Kiss Online logo? Why do we want that? Because we want people to know people, meaning KISS fans, to know KISS Online exists. Go back to it. I mean, we were even telling fans, go find that truck, 
take a picture of yourself standing in front of the truck before selfies were a thing. Get a selfie with the truck, send us the picture, and we'll post your picture on our website. All that is common today, but you know, oh, yeah. 98, 99, 2000. No, I mean, uh, people were like, boy, do we want to wrap a semi truck with the band's logo on it? Isn't that like advertising? Come break in and steal the truck. Like, oh, this is such a great. I mean, we've we've got this truck that's traveling the country. It's like our own billboard. Yes, we want our name up there. Everybody's exactly in the same kiss business as Kiss is in. We just do it a zillion times bigger. Everybody goes out on tour and sells T-shirts. You're in the kiss business, baby. Were there ever any possible doubts at the time that this may have worked on the validity of the internet as a marketing tool? Was there ever any fear or doubt? Okay, this might be a crapshoot. I wouldn't say there was ever any fear because honestly, my attitude is when I move into something, I'm not worried. Is it going to work? Is it going to fail? It's go do it. Go do the best you can. Yeah, some stuff isn't going to work. Nothing succeeds 100% of the time. I mean, you know, look at the best baseball players out there. They hit, what, 300%? They're hitting 300. So that means they're hitting, you know, three out of 10 balls. <laughs> You're sitting here going, damn, they're missing more than they're hitting. <laughs> but they're considered superstars. So again, I don't waste time. Like, could this fail? Could there be problems? I mean, you know, a perfect example, when we launched the meet and greet packages for KISS in 2003, we had no idea if it was going to work. Nobody had ever done selling VIP packages before. Yes, there might've been a few buy your concert tickets, but that was it. You know, the Grateful Dead had done it. Pearl Jam had done it. Buy your tickets through our post office box or whatever. Nobody had ever done a full-on VIP program especially at the level KISS came out of the box with $1,000, meet the band, get a photo, front row tickets, T-shirt, everything, again, that is standard to the industry today. When we did that with KISS in 2003, it never existed. So, yeah, I, I remember when we got the band to approve doing that deal and we set up these $25, $1,000 packages online and tickets were going on sale on Friday. We were all sitting back going, oh, is this going to work or is it not? This there, was there, the Kiss there, Aerosmith there was, Tour 2003, correct? Kiss Aerosmith Tour. There was no experience anywhere in the world that was going to say, well, here's what you should expect to sell. Here's what you can sell. Here's what fans want. I mean, I literally created that program purely as a KISS fan because Doc McGee's office had called me and said, do you want us to hold any tickets for the Aerosmith tour for the website? Now, being in the industry for years, I know that band ticket holds are usually the best seats. They can hold the best tickets right in the front, right on the side, but they're the best tickets that they've got. And I said, yeah, I want you to hold them for me. They go, well, we need to know what you want to do with them and how many you want, because by the end of the week, we have to release them back to the promoters so they can go on sale to the general public. If we don't use them, we've got to give them back. Okay. I've never done a ticket program before in my life, but I sat back and I'm like, okay, I'm a KISS fan. I know that just a few years earlier, four years earlier than the reunion tour, KISS fans were paying $750 to a scalper to get a front row ticket. Now, none of that money was going to the band, it was going to the scalper. And all they were getting was the ticket. And I'm like, what do KISS fans want more than anything? They want to meet the meet band. The band. They want to meet the band and get a photo with the band. And then I was like, okay, so fans are willing to pay $750 for a scalper's front row ticket. What they would pay for a photo, unlimited. I mean, who knows? That, you know, that could be thousands that they might want to pay. So I was just trying to make a, a good value here of like, okay, a front row ticket or second row ticket, a photo with the band. We're the merchandising company, so we can give you a free t-shirt because that t-shirt at the bulk that we were printing on was probably costing us a buck for that t-shirt. Tour book was the same way. We manufactured the tour book, so the tour book was probably a couple bucks for us. Guitar picks, you know, nobody was giving out band guitar picks at the time. So getting a guitar pick, you had to either personally know somebody, a roadie had to give it to you, or you had to pick one up off the floor when the band flicked it to you. 
So getting guitar picks were a cool item for fans. But I also knew the band was manufacturing thousands upon thousands of guitar picks for next to nothing, if not for free, because of their relationships. So it's like, okay, give us the guitar picks. We'll throw in a t-shirt. We'll do the tour book. But the two expensive items will be the photo and the ticket. And I initially had told Doc, I said, we could do that for 500 bucks. It'll be a photo with the band out of makeup because I didn't think there was any way we could get the band to do a photo in makeup, basically knowing that after the show, they pretty much leave right away. So there's no meet and greets after a show. And, you know, for basically, what, two hours before showtime, they're starting to get made up. They're in costumes. They're getting ready, all that other stuff. So it would need to probably be before they go in to get makeup on. And Doc said, I love this whole concept, but if I can get them to do this in makeup, what could we sell it for? And I said, if you can get Kiss to take a photo in makeup, we can do this for $1,000 a ticket. And he said, we'll make it happen. So in advance, it seemed to all make sense. It seemed like a good value. It seemed like what the fans wanted. But again, we've never sold, we Nobody's ever sold anything like that before. So we weren't going in fearful, but we were just going into that first day of on sales, not knowing, you know, what's the public going to say to this? Are they going to say, no, you crossed the line, you know, $1,000, way too much. Or are they going to say, wow, thank you. This was my dream come true. And I mean, we, we learned within five minutes, it was, thank you. It's my dream come true because we sold 25 $1,000 tickets across 60 shows within minutes. So boom, we got our answer. People like this. Not everybody liked it because I'm sure if you were around back then, there was a lot of fan uproar amongst fans who couldn't afford it. You know, how dare you sell this? You should be doing this for free, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, we sold every ticket. So the market spoke. And from that point forward, it was all go to do VIP programs, not just for KISS, but every artist wanted in on it. Because you also look back in 2003, album sales pretty much bit the dust. What album that sales? Point in time. <laughs> yeah, digital, Napster killed it. So now artists were like, we lost all that revenue from album sales. Where are we going to make this up? What's our new revenue stream? We've got one here for you. You want to do some meet and greets? We can sell meet and greets. $300, $400, $500, $1,000. Depends on your fan base, your demand, what you can provide. And that turned out to be incredible money for artists. I think it was on three sides of the coin where it may have been you or it may have been Tommy, someone said it, that back in the day, bands went on tour to promote albums. Nowadays, it's almost like they release albums to promote tours. You yeah, know, it's like I it's kind of switched. Yeah, I mean, again, the artist, the, the potential client I was talking to earlier today, that's exactly what I said. I'm like, you won't sell music today. If you think you're going to make your money selling music, it's not going to happen. You can argue whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter. It's just the way things are. You're not going to get rich selling music. You make your money, everything else you sell. So you release that album to promote t-shirts, to promote VIP programs, to promote a book, whatever it might be. You release the music to promote the tour. The music is just a marketing tool. And again, there's some people that will want to argue that that's wrong. It doesn't matter whether it's wrong or right. It's the reality that music is a marketing tool now and you make your money elsewhere. There's a fun saying I've always told artists. It's like bands are nothing more than t-shirt factories. And Kiss is a perfect example of that. But the reality is bands should be making t-shirts, merchandise, hats, all this other stuff. Because guess what? That's the sort of stuff that can't be pirated. Yeah, you, you, you can't easily steal that t-shirt. Now, of course, sure, somebody could steal that artwork, go set it up on Teespring, set up a store, sell bootlegs, whatever. But that's not going to make a dent in your income the way stealing music literally wiped out revenue for artists across the board. You've got to think about these days of selling experiences, selling collectibles, selling products, and the music is just a way to market that you got new experiences and products. I think we need to take into account that 
the key word in music business is business. However, nothing's stopping you from releasing music for the love of it. If there's no attachment to go out and tour and go out to make your money back, then for God's sakes, you know, you have the opportunity to make that music at home and, you know, mix, master, produce it, quantize it, you know, and and put it out there if you want. Nothing's stopping you from doing that. But you're right. If music is something you want to make a full time career, well, these are the things that you have to consider. It's completely understandable. You know, I mean, I can look at it objectively and go, yeah, I, I mean, myself, I'm I'm a music fan. But I also know that if I want to promote, like, for example, I'm wearing an Images of Eden shirt. They're a band on Pavement Records. Um, they just wrapped a uh, tour with Ingve Malmsteen last fall. This fall, they're going to go on tour with uh, Mr. Uh, with Mr. Big's Eric Martin and the Michael Shanker group. So I'm genuinely a fan of their music. But I also know, you know, me promoting their music isn't enough to help, you know, to help them continue. I also need to buy their merch if I really want to. I completely get it. And I'm OK with that. And I, I think that where some people kind of look at it idealistically, the realism is if you were still buying their CDs, then we wouldn't be having this conversation about this evolution well, in the music industry. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, the music consumer stopped buying music. They decided they wanted the music for free or as little as possible, you know, 10 bucks a month for a streaming service. If fans were still buying product, things could be different. This is one of the things I always tell fans anywhere is like, if you love your artist, you got to support them. If you want them to tour next year, if you want them to do another album, even if you listen to everything on Spotify, I say this all the time, like about Ace Fraley. I listen to Ace Fraley on Spotify all the time, but I still buy his CD when it comes out or his vinyl or his T-shirt or I'll go to a show. You got to do those things to show there's a market of fans who are willing to spend the money. If there is nobody out there buying stuff, the artist is not going to do it themselves much longer. We know historically, once an artist stops selling, a record label is going to drop that artist because there's no business being had there. So you've got to support your band. Go to iTunes and download it for 10 bucks. You don't have to listen to the download. It's the point that you purchase something and that purchasing something is your vote. I mean, there, we always joke online, but it's true. You got to vote with your wallet. If you don't purchase, that's a vote that says, I don't want this. At the end of the day, the business behind that artist is going to go, nobody purchased it. We, not, we don't know why. They just didn't buy anything. So we're going on to the next artist. Sorry, Ace, we're done with you. We're going on to the next artist. You want people to continue to produce music, to tour, to be active as a fan. You've got to support them in purchasing something, a T-shirt, vinyl, CD, digital download, book, hat, whatever it is, purchase something so you vote with your wallet so they know, yeah, there's people out there that are interested in this, so we'll do more of it. I never thought it ever gets to the point where people care more about first week appearances on the Billboard Top 200 than the longevity of an album. For example, you take a look at Def Leppard's Hysteria. I think it's Double Diamond at this point. Ace Fraley, who I love and respect as a musician, I think it's great that he has made top 10 with one of his most recent releases. So people were buying it, but then after the first week, drastic drop it's like that's, yeah that, that's but crazy. you know it's a whole different world now this has even changed but i remember like 10 years ago there was complete shock in the music industry that the number one album on the billboard top 200 charts only sold forty thousand copies people were like oh my god you that's can become a, you can be a number one artist by selling only forty thousand copies pearl jam and went platinum their first week with verses i remember that was a big it, deal but that again, that's when people were buying music. Now, somebody like Kiss, Ace Fraley, first week sales, 150,000. 
That's crazy when you think about it. KISS will play to 150,000 people in 10 days while on tour, but yet they will only sell 150,000 units. Maybe over by the time an album's run its full course, 250,000. I mean, any band getting a gold album these days is just, it's not expected. I mean, how can you sell 500,000 copies of an album? You got to be Adele or Taylor Swift. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. So yeah. Ace can have a top 10 album, but it doesn't mean much like it used to when you can get into the top 10 by only selling 15, 20,000 albums. Now, again, in the scope of where we are today, that's not bad. But 30 years ago, if you sold 20,000 albums your first week, you were dropped by your second week. You were literally without a record deal by your second week because that was ridiculous. You, nobody was going to make money selling 20,000 albums. So is this kind of safe to say that maybe since all of this evolution has happened, that practices of the music industry in the past are stagnant or there's no relevance to them in today's culture? The fact that you mentioned that KISS was one of the first to use the VIP pass experience as a way for them to not just recoup any loss that they would have had from album sales, but to further establish, the, I guess you could say, their dominance in the market. Do you think any practices of the past are still relevant today? Touring, that's probably the one thing that was relevant when the music industry started and is still relevant. You have to get out and tour. You've got to play. That's where you get out and see the fans face to face. That's where you get the response, the reactions. That's where you can sell stuff. That's still so incredibly important. I mean, if a band today can't get out and tour, the honest truth is you're going to go nowhere. You've got to be able to tour. If you're serious, you have to be a touring band. And that means you've got to play the hole-in-the-wall places to 50 people. You don't get to be a band that thinks, oh, I want to buy on or I want to be an opener on a major tour. Just like working in the music industry, you got to pay your dues. You got to work your way up to those opportunities. Overnight success is 10 years in the making for so many bands. So it might look like overnight they went from nothing to superstars, but you, you haven't been paying attention to them for the last 10, 20 years where they were slugging it out, playing to 10 people, playing county fairs, playing to nobodies. That's the one aspect of the music industry that's still the same. Everything else... It's almost like there's no rules anymore in a good way. There's no formula. It's not like back in the 80s where the formula was, we're going to record an album. The first single is going to be the rock song. The second track is the power ballad. Then we follow that up. If we can get to a third single by another hard rock song, you know, there's got to be a video for this. We've got to do an MTV premiere. You know, there was sadly, and I think that's what killed it in the 80s became very much a formula. You got to look this way. Cover's got to be this way. You got to sound this way. It's got to have this sort of hook to it, this sort of melody to it. And there was a few years there where that formula was spitting out gold and platinum left and right. But that formula doesn't work anymore. Back then, the formula was record an album, tour for a year, take a year off, record another album. And the third year, you're back in the scene again. Nowadays, if you're gone for three years, forget it. You're starting from scratch. You know, there's no downtime anymore. It's definitely a hustle. I can recall in my college days, there was a club in Queens where I'm from originally, Queens, New York. Didn't grow up too far from where the Coventry Club was. If anyone understands the reference, Coventry was the first club Kiss ever played. I think they played to less than 10 people. Yeah. I think seven people total, their girlfriends and, and... And most of those were girlfriends and friends. So there you go. That's paying dues. Somebody like Kiss, their first shows, nobody was there. But there was a club called Castle Heights that I would frequently go to. Some of the bigger bands that were in the Ozfest era from 2004 on, bands such as Shadows Fall and Unearth and Hatebreed, when they made their way into New York... They cut their teeth in Castle Heights, which was a small little stage with a barely functional PA. But I tell you, 
the kids were packing up more and more every time that they were coming in. So you want to talk paying your dues? I saw it. It worked for them because they were some of the biggest metal bands in the 2000s. Unfortunately, in an area like New York, where the clubs to play were CBGBs, Continental, some of the Queens clubs, even some of the Long Island clubs like Revolution, that opportunity is gone, which is unfortunate. If the place to play for your following isn't in your hometown, then look to go elsewhere. You got to get creative and you got to figure it out. It's harder and harder to find venues that you can play. It's harder and harder to find venues that will actually pay you anything decent. I mean, as we know, in this day and age, most venues only want to book tribute bands mm -hmm. because they're cheap. But they're all, I mean, I worked at a venue and I, I know this firsthand. As much as we wanted to book original bands, they just couldn't sell the tickets. They couldn't fill the place up. We bring a tribute band in, cost us significantly less money, and they pack the place every time. You know, and what, what's a venue supposed to do? Go out of business because people don't want to come see the original bands because the original bands want more money or keep the doors open, bring in the tribute bands and see if you can slide an original band in there every once in a while. I mean, it, it's a challenging world, no doubt, but nobody said it was going to be easy. The music business has never been an easy business. No, it hasn't. And I, I mean, I think the biggest signing maybe in the last year alone, maybe Mariah Formica and her band Plush to Payment Entertainment. And when I say biggest, I don't mean like, you know, it's selling out stadiums here and there, but I remember that there was a very big press release and a lot of publicity around it. And they got signed to Pavement, which oddly enough is Images of Eden's label. Pavement was strictly signing underground metal acts, such as mm -hmm. uh, Crowbar. So it's just crazy yep. how the time has changed. And it's an independent label signing plush. And I wish them all the best. I think they're an incredibly talented young band. And I hope that the hustle and bustle of the industry doesn't kill their spirits. Because I think that four great female musicians who write great tunes, they got great vocal melodies. I hope to see them succeed. I also wish they would answer my questions about uh, coming onto the podcast, but that's a different story. But I digress. But moving right along, the crazy thing is that when artists finally achieve that level of success, then we run into another issue, which is the T word that everyone seems to love to use nowadays, which is transparency. In some instances, everyone begs for transparency from everybody. But once they see it, they are disgusted by what they see. The fact is that when people are faced with truth about the ins and outs of the industry, it's sometimes more than they bargain for and fandom kind of dies or dwindles out. Meanwhile, the purpose of records was always to sell you an artistic product of merit. Yes, image plays a vital role too, but outsiders of the music business fail to understand. Again, I have to make this point and drive it home. The second word in that term is business. So you get the music as a product, but there's a whole back end of people that work in the business from A&R reps to promotion teams, road crew that people seem to overlook. You know, you got to pay the roadies too. production teams, merch teams, songwriters. Again, I emphasize being a musician with a full time job and playing gigs here and there is one thing. I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing, but being in a signed touring act is completely different. Then you have the sites like Blabbermouth and Metal Sucks and Metal Injection and Loudwire and even pages on YouTube where you see a lot of clickbait that puts these artists in a very bad light. I'd hate to bring issue of this, but you know there was footage that leaked of the certain band that we're talking about that everyone's now accusing them of lip syncing. It doesn't affect me either way. It's like if I choose, if I still want to support them, that's on me. That's the onus is on me. It's not on anyone else. So I don't really pay attention to what others have to say. But when it comes to this transparency, sometimes the bad is either self-inflicted or other times you're in an industry that seems to love to help an artist to help them succeed, but then really wants to watch them fail, which I think is a tragedy. Do you feel like transparency helps or hinders artists? in the music industry? And do you feel like they put bands at a huge disadvantage? You know, in general, I don't have any issue with transparency. Transparency does make the image, the mystique of rock and roll much more difficult. Case in point, KISS could never have happened in this decade. 
transparency would have seen through the whole thing. You would have Googled Gene Simmons. You would have learned who he was. You would have found his pictures as a kid. There was no way they could have gotten away with being photographed without their makeup on. That only existed in that time when they were around. It could have never worked now. So, yeah, you know, to some extent, transparency takes away the mystique of being a rock star. If you've been in the music industry, you know, every single bio you've ever read on every one of your favorite bands, for the most part, could be 100% made up backstory, 100% made up backstory. It's sensationalizing. It's making it bigger than life. That's what rock stars are supposed to be. Transparency takes that away. At the end of the day, we live in a society now that just really wants controversy and sensationalism of everything. Ain't and that the truth? If that's what some person lives for, God bless them, go for it. If that's what you want to make your life out to be, is to find fault in everything that you see and encounter and every person you run into, hey, go for it. I mean, that's not for me. I got more important things in my life than worrying about that sort of stuff. I don't think you're going to ever get rid of transparency. Back to what we were talking about earlier, fans just have to learn to vote with their wallet. If you are upset that somebody's using backing tracks, you have every right to be upset. Every right. I won't argue that at all. But the only way you're going to make a difference is if you vote by not supporting that artist ever again. That's how they pay attention. At the end of the day, as you said, it's the music business. This is all about, and I don't care what artist you're talking about, if they are a professional recording artist, the word professional in itself implies they're doing this to make money. Otherwise, you're an amateur. You know, the difference between an amateur athlete and a professional athlete is one doesn't get paid, one does get paid. At, at, at the core, that's the difference. So if you're a professional musician, every single musician out there, and I don't care who you, you could throw Bruce Springsteen in my face, you could throw Bob Dylan, they're all doing this to make money. Because if they can't make money, they can't make art. Art doesn't happen for free. It doesn't pay for itself. Absolutely. It doesn't pay for itself. So as a fan, if you are turned off by something an artist is doing, don't support them. You can make all the noise you want on the internet, but I can tell you that most people in the business can tune that all out because that carries no actual real weight in the situation. Oh, it's just a bunch of fans screaming and talking on blabbermouth, on a message board, on a Facebook group. How many people in told are really screaming there? Oh, there's probably 12 people that are making all that noise. Yeah, okay. We don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. If you want to actually sit here and organize a protest at somebody's concert and you can get 500 people to show up and protest somebody using backing tracks at a concert, you'll get somebody's attention. But at the end of the day, if they start making less money, you really got their attention. That's where they're going to sit here and go, oh, okay, we got a problem. Panic! Ah! Panic! Ah! This tour sold half the tickets, our last tour sold. Is it possible it was because of this? We've got to address it. That's what gets people's attention. You know, and I've, I've dealt with this firsthand. I mean, I've been dealing with it since I started working Kiss Online in 1998. I've dealt with the online feuds, firestorms, trolls, all of that. And I can tell you for a fact, at the end of the day, it's a bunch of hot air is all it is. Because those people, for the most part, all of them will scream bloody murder and then buy a concert ticket. Okay, you just negated every argument you ever made because you just bought the concert ticket. Oh, you hate these, this band's albums but you just bought their new CD. What do you want me to say? You bought it. That's your vote. That was your vote to say, yes, I like this. You love it. You hate it. You paid for it. <laughs> you paid. At the, yeah. At the end of the day, we got your money. We don't care if you love it or hate it. We got your money. Most people who've been in this business a long time understand that all the stuff you're seeing and hearing online, it's just somebody who's bored somewhere. Please, please, please get a life. 
you know, I don't want to use the cliche of it. Somebody sitting in their mom's basement, but they probably are. <laughs> but honestly, if you spend hours a day trolling message boards and bands and leaving comments and making videos and memes and everything else that people do online, what are you doing for a life? I mean, you got a four-year-old. I got an eight-year-old. That's my life. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, somebody leaves a comment. Okay. It's funny. Somebody was like, how do you sleep at night when you know what people think of you? On the bed. I sleep, I sleep <laughs> naked and comfortable at night. Doesn't bother me one bit because I've also met some of these people face to face. They're not like that when you meet them face to face. They don't have the same conviction and passion face to face. That's why I said, if you wanted to get 500 fans together, even 100 fans and go protest in front of a concert, that takes conviction to go out there and reveal yourself in front of everybody else about what you think. It's so easy to do that online. Frankly, you can do it anonymously and no one's going to come back to you. So transparency is, to some extent, it's a byproduct of the world we're living in right now, which yeah. in itself is not a bad thing. I mean, I think we need more transparency in a lot of what's going on in this world. You need to understand what's the government really doing, what's media really doing, what are corporations really doing. But at the end of the day, wait for it. This is just rock and roll. We Thank you for listening to the Music Aside podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, The Team Otoki Podcast, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and The Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Medium, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicasidepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Mavs at musicaslivepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicaslivepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsareview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>